Welcome into this week's edition of NFL Friday. A lot to get into this week. So happy to have you along with us as we do. Alongside Nick DeLuca, I am Jimmy Sullivan. We are coming to you the week after the Super Bowl. And it has happened again. Tom Brady has won the Lombardi Trophy for a seventh time. He does so with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this time, a 31-9 victory over the Kansas City Chiefs. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, for the second time in franchise history, are Super Bowl champions. And the Chiefs, who were favored going into this game, suffer a big loss. First time Patrick Mahomes has been defeated by double digits in his NFL career. Nick, I go to you first. What were your thoughts just about this game, about the way it transpired and how Tampa Bay really ran away with it, particularly in that second half. I think a result that many of us, uh, in the manner in which it happened, did not expect. Well, I have to stop you for a minute because you said Tom Brady has won another Lombardi. Let's add, tossed it off of his <laughs> boat to another boat during the parade. So there was also that. It wasn't just one another one. He had never thrown it before. So he has also thrown the Lombardi Trophy which I thought was an interesting move. But I guess that avocado tequila in the sunlight will really get to there you. There were a lot of interesting down in moves Tampa Bay. that Yes, that was, that was quite a parade to watch or, or to, to keep tabs on. So that's, that's the first thing. But I think the, the biggest thing that surprised me was how handily Tampa Bay won the line of scrimmage on both sides. And perhaps that maybe should not have been as big of a surprise with some of the injuries that Kansas City had to endure in shuffling right tackle to left tackle and the right guard coming in with the right tackle, right guard rather, swinging out to right tackle. So there were a bunch, there was a bunch of shuffling that was being done on Kansas City's offensive line. But you, you still felt like they would be able to generate a pass rush on the, on the defensive line and Chris Jones and Frank Clark, who they have there. And those guys were not able to, to do much in the way of pressuring Tom Brady. The Buccaneers were able to run the football pretty well, 145 yards on, on 33 carries, and most of that with the game in hand and running the football to try and salt the game away. So that was the biggest thing for me, and, and that – is as much as everyone loves to pay attention to Patrick Mahomes and the wide receivers and Tom Brady and Gronk, that's where the game is won. And, and sometimes it's about those skill players when the matchup is fairly even, but the line of scrimmage was so one-sided that Tampa Bay was going to win that game no matter what happened. And it didn't really matter how the rest of anyone else played because it was such an advantage and Patrick Mahomes did not have any opportunity to breathe whatsoever. And Tom Brady had all day. And that was the key to the ball game. And it was amazing because Todd Bowles is defense. And, and there's a lot of credit that goes to him. But it's the front four. They got pressure with rushing three and four pass rushers. I believe it was more than 50% of the time. If they can't block a three-man rush and a four-man rush, you, you can't win the ball game. It's almost impossible to be able to drop seven and still generate the pressure of a blitz. The, the game's over at that point, and a lot of credit goes to the guys in the trenches for Tampa Bay 
because I know everyone's paying attention to Tom Brady's seventh ring and Gronk had two touchdowns and Antonio Brown scored and oh, what the heck was going on with Patrick Mahomes? I'll tell you what went on with Patrick Mahomes. It was Tampa Bay's defensive line getting after it and them doing enough on offense as well. It was huge credit to, to the guys in the trenches for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That's why they win the Super Bowl. Just a quick stat here from ESPN Stats and Info. They tracked Patrick Mahomes as having run 497 yards to uh, elude the pass rush mostly on Super Bowl Sunday um, and also various other reasons for him running around. But I think it's interesting, and I, I tried not to look too much back at the regular season matchup and what the Chiefs did in that game because I don't think it's – analogous basically to say okay well this is what happened then this is what happened now it's the same two teams it is not Tampa Bay played a lot better down the stretch of the season you know Kansas City as you said had the injuries with uh, Eric Fisher on the one side Mitchell Schwartz on the other side so they were playing reserves in that it was a different thing but but I think it is useful to go back and say okay well what works in the Kansas City playbook. And what we're used to is, you know, big plays, some deep balls. We certainly saw that in week 12 with Tyree Kill just going deep and in some cases running after the catch, so much so to the point where they were throwing two guys at him in the second half of that game, and rightfully so. But what gets lost in that and what I think hurt the Chiefs on Sunday is that when you look at a play like that, as great as it is, those plays take time to develop, right? Patrick Mahomes needs a clean pocket or something resembling a clean pocket. You know, even in the Super Bowl last year on the big play to Hill that changed the whole game, he was able to, while he didn't have a ton of time, he was able to backpedal and get enough on that ball so that Hill can make the play and Kansas City goes, scores a touchdown, and they wind up winning the game. Mahomes couldn't even do that. And I, I saw people on Twitter mostly, who were saying, well, why doesn't Mahomes step up into the pocket? There's no pocket for him to step up into. That's why. Because you look at the rush, and there were a couple of times where Mahomes was able to step into the pocket, and he made a couple throws. But most of the rush was coming up the middle, so he's trying to run left and right, and that's why he was running so much left and right, because it was kind of the only place for him to go. And, you know, it's so crucial to have an offensive line and we don't look at the chiefs as you know a, a physical running team and they're not but for the purposes of what they want to do offensively they really really miss Derek fisher in this game and you've got mike remmers playing on the outside for him and unfortunately i hate to say it i mean this is the second super bowl we've watched mike remmers get wrecked and that's what happened in Super Bowl 50 when he was with the Panthers. And it's what happened this past week with the game against the Chiefs. But I, I watch that and I say, wow, you know, you take two offensive linemen out of the equation changes the whole thing. And everybody, I think thought that the offensive line was in some way going to be affected, but to the extent it was, I don't know if anybody could have predicted. And it was, an incredibly dominant performance by the Bucks front four and the Chiefs offensive line just had really no answer for it. It threw their entire game plan off. No. And there isn't any substitute for adjusting because it's, it's a physical thing. And 
I know that what gets thrown around a lot when you talk about football and it frustrates me a little bit is, Oh, well, this is what you do to just shut down the chiefs or, okay, this is the game plan. Well, a lot of what the game plan has to to go into or the way that it's shaped is having the personnel that is able to requisitely execute the game plan that you're interested in running. And the unfortunate part for a number of teams I would argue the Bills included in the AFC championship game. They had the same game plan. It was all soft zone. It was, we're not going to get beat over the top. And the difference was the Bills in the AFC championship game with Eric Fisher were not able to get to the quarterback. Patrick Mahomes had enough time to make the throws and he was all set. And on the other side into the Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes did not have the time. So it's the same coverage. It's the, same, it's the same concept, same game plan. It, it's just different execution. And Tampa Bay was able to execute that so much better. You need a front four that is really good and is going to get home. If you have that, then you have what it takes to beat the Chiefs. It's not the game plan. It's also the personnel. If you have Jason Pierre, Paul, Vita Vea, Nandamakin Sue, Shaq Barrett, if you've got those guys, okay, you can, you can beat the Chiefs. It's about finding the players who can execute what you want to do in these situations, but really impressive uh, by, by Tampa Bay because that's not easy to consistently win. And they won at a rate that I don't know if it's ever been done before with three or four man rushes. I mean, that's how historically great their front four was in this Super Bowl against Kansas City. And it needed to be historically great to hold Patrick Mahomes to nine points. I mean, the Chiefs are a really, really good offense. Uh, out, you, you look at up and down the, the game and how poorly it went for Kansas City and how terribly things went. Travis Kelsey still at 133 yards receiving. So they were still able to do things and get people involved, but you just cannot get things going consistently enough when you are getting blown up at the line of scrimmage the way they were. And again, as I, I said earlier, a huge credit goes to the guys at the line of scrimmage, both offensively and defensively for Tampa Bay, because that's what wins them the Super Bowl. I also want to just toss this out there. And a lot of this stuff's easier said than done. So I'm not saying, oh, this is the be all end all. I don't think something like this would have changed the outcome of the game, but I am a little bit surprised that Kansas City, particularly in the second half, when the offensive line was getting killed, that they didn't try more quick game RPO type stuff to get it out of Mahomes' hands a little bit quicker. Now, again, I don't know if it would have worked. I don't know how much it would have changed the outcome, if at all. And obviously there's a lot of ground up there. But we were talking, Jackson Heil and I, on the show last week about how this was going to be an issue for Kansas City. And, and Jackson picked Kansas City, and even he was saying, look, this this could be problematic. And I'm just a little surprised that a team that has the likes of Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey and going down the depth chart, a guy like McCall Hardman, didn't try some of those things to just get the ball in their hands and let them try to make some plays. I, I was a little surprised that there was so much you know, three and five and seven step drops where Mahomes is sort of required to sit in the pocket. And granted, he had no time. So I'm not 
blaming anybody on that because that is that would have been an issue the whole game no matter what they did. But I am a bit surprised that they didn't try some of that stuff to try to neutralize the front four and also to implant in the head of Todd Bowles that, hey, maybe the front four isn't going to get home and maybe we need to blitz more guys and then that's when they take the shot and hit the big play. I, I was a little surprised they didn't try to do at least a little more of that. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that they really did not adjust from the first matchup and felt like they were going to largely be able to do what they were doing in week 12. And that was, all right, we're going to go bombs away and, and be fine at, at attacking what can or what rather Tampa Bay gave to us. And we're going to be able to throw the ball deep to Tyree Kill. He had the most receiving yards in a quarter in NFL history to open that game up. And, and as he was just burning everything and then after that uh, Tampa Bay was able to go to more of a zone look for the rest of the duration of that game certainly something that we saw in the Super Bowl for almost all of it and that's what was successful for them in keeping that game close and shutting things down eventually a close loss in week 12 not so much in the Super Bowl but it, I think it is a little bit easier said than done in that sense because there's only so much that you can do in the short to to intermediate game, especially when you are getting beat on the line of scrimmage the way that you are, because there are only so many routes that you're running. And then you've got defensive backs that know that you're, you're not a threat deep. And I don't, I would not have expected Tampa Bay to ever creep up and say, okay, we'll give you the deep shot because we know we're going to get home anyway. I don't think that they were that arrogant going into that game, at least, you know, and seeing how it played out. I'm sure Todd Bowles, took a chance or two in looking back at the film. Of course, I have not. But I think for the most part, they were they were content to force Kansas City to do things underneath. And if they tried anything past 15 yards, they were – Patrick Mahomes was on the ground. There was no time to do anything else uh, other than that. And, look, that said, Travis Kelsey, 10 catches, 133 yards. Tyree Kill, 7 catches, 73 yards. So they weren't completely neutralized – but I, I do agree with you where I would have said that Kansas City could have improved things. Let's try the screen game. Let's do some things, whether it be a wide receiver screen, running back screen, uh, even a draw from the running back. Do something that will not allow, especially as the deficit became greater for Kansas City and Tampa Bay knew that they were going to have to pass. Do not let that front four who is winning so drastically pin their ears back and get after you. So do some things that make them have to question about, okay, I beat this offensive lineman, but is this really a true read? Could it be a screen? What is something to throw things off to just slow down the rush a little bit? I think screen passes would have been the the missing piece or something that Kansas City could have been more creative with. RPOs in the same way can give the guys the false reads. It's a run read for the defensive linemen. So they're playing gaps as opposed to then, you know, pass rushing in the, in the purest way and you're getting the ball out of your hands quickly. But I think those are the biggest things that adjustments that I would have looked for from Andy Reid. But again, as, as I said, once you're down in that game, which they were, to me, most of it becomes mood, and that's not to absolve Andy Reid, who also had a really questionable call at the end of the first half, but there really wasn't too much that Andy Reid was going to do to push Kansas City to a victory when you lose the line of scrimmage in that fashion. I also want to say this before we move on to other aspects of this discussion. 
we're talking about Kansas City, and obviously they did not have a good game. Even with that, they had some opportunities. You know, Patrick Mahomes makes what I've been calling the Buddy the Elf throw, where he's going down and he sidearms it towards the end zone, and it hits Tyree Kill in the face. Uh, I mean, they they had some opportunities. It, it's not like, oh, this was like totally locked down. I mean, Tampa Bay played as well as you can possibly play defensively against this offense, I think. And yet you had Patrick Mahomes, who, by the way, is dealing with a turf toe, which is miserable to play through, still had the opportunity to make some plays. So I, I think that's there as well, that even like as well as Tampa Bay played, they played unbelievable game defensively. It was still there for Kansas City. There were still some opportunities. Not that they would have won the game, but they should have had more than nine points, if we're being yeah, honest. I'm, I'm, I'm with you there, too. And the thing for me and what it shows you is that when you lose the line of scrimmage in that fashion as, as the overarching theme of the game, your margin for error is so small. You cannot in any way, shape, or fashion afford to drop a touchdown, to drop two touchdowns, to drop a pass – because you're up against it for the entire game. It is almost impossible, as I said, to win a game in that fashion, but particularly when you make mistakes like that, you can't have them. And that, I think, would, would be the, the frustrating thing for Kansas City. And they, they, in particular, are not equipped to win a game like this. They are offensively explosive. And, and if you played this game ten times – I don't know that you could hold Kansas City to nine points all the time. And I don't think that the game would have been different. I think Kansas City would still lose. I think Tampa Bay was that good and that good of a matchup at this juncture of the season. But that's the way they play. And on the average, in, in the way we talk about it in the baseball postseason all the time, over, over 162, over 16 games over the playoffs – having the best offense is going to win you a lot of games. And it's the most sustainable model for success. That's why we're talking about the Chiefs losing in their second consecutive Super Bowl that they went to because they've been so good for so long and a stretch that has been remarkable with Patrick Mahomes at quarterback. But there are times where, depending on the matchup, in a one-game playoff for all the, the Tostitos, as we, we love to say, that Tampa Bay can take advantage of winning the line of scrimmage, and that's what they did. And the margin for error zero, really surprising to see Kansas City drop the passes the way that they did and just be so flat. But you know what? Again, I, I hate to be repetitive and hate to keep coming back to the same thing, but those things happen when you lose the line of scrimmage because there is such an emphasis on doing things that, that are, are necessary to even keep you within a prayer of the football game. Kansas City didn't do it, and that's why they lose by 22. And, I mean, no need to apologize for being repetitive here. Tampa Bay wins the game going away. And the headline here, and you know, we've kind of avoided the headline because it's, I don't think, really the focal point of the game. But the headline, of course, is Tom Brady has won his seventh Super Bowl. And... You know, yes, it was in large part, I think, due to the front four and that type of matchup. Um, but 21 of 29, 201 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions, QBR of 82. Brady wins Super Bowl MVP. And just in- incredible stuff. If you would have said at the start of the season that, yeah, this guy at 43 years old is going to pack it in, go to Tampa Bay, 
and win a Super Bowl. I thought they were going to have success, but to see it crystallize in this fashion where they get hot at the end of the season, they run through the NFC, they beat you know the preeminent quarterbacks in our game at one time or another, Rodgers, Breeze, Heineke. I'm sorry, I had to throw that in there. But uh, nonetheless... Patrick Mahomes, of course. A much richer Taylor Heineke as of this week, Jimmy. Yes. They, one game could set you up for life, let me tell you. But nonetheless, I will say this. To see it happen in this way, in some ways, I know it's Tom Brady. And, and I know you and I have seen more than our fair share of Tom Brady as football fans in our lives. You as a Bills fan, I as a Jets fan. But – even I was kind of taken aback at how they were able to pull this off with a team that went seven and nine last year, had the leading passer in the league in Jameis Winston, who also threw 30 picks, which is obviously a very important part of that story. But to see them go from games that they were finding ways to lose to games that they were finding ways to win all the way to the Super Bowl, really incredible. And if you would have told me that six months ago, I probably would have laughed in your face, but good on the Buccaneers. Good on Bruce Arians, who has won his first Super Bowl, on figuring this out, putting it all together, and getting it done. But, yeah, really incredible stuff, I think, from the Buccaneers, from Tom Brady, everyone involved in the operation to figure this out. Well, I think what goes under-talked about is some of what has come with Tom Brady, though. And that's, okay, I'm going to have Gronk come with me and catch two touchdowns, and Leonard Fournette's going to join the Buccaneers because he wants to play with Tom Brady, and Antonio Brown the same thing, and some of the others. And and I don't want to – because I think the Brady effect goes so much farther than what you can see on the field. And the, the 200 yards is not something that's going to wow you, and he took care of the football, the three touchdowns and no interceptions, and I think that's where he was really able to improve from Jameis Winston a year ago because he was utilizing the weapons that they had and, and not turning the football over at nearly the rate that Jameis Winston was. But I also think that Tom Brady is outstanding in getting – Tampa Bay and and New England back when he was there into the right play and doing what is required as someone who has a really high football IQ, making the right decision in the right play. And it was something that, that Peyton Manning was known for, for the duration of his career, because he's out barking out audibles and doing that. And that's not Tom Brady's style, but I think that he is someone who should be talked about in that same breath as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, pre-snap quarterback of all time. And it's something that you, quite frankly, would expect at his age. I mean, he has seen so much football. He's been in football, you know, depending on which team he's playing, longer than the the coordinator who's calling the defenses. So to expect anything less would be like, oh, well, what what has he been doing the last 20 years? But I think that is such an advantage because Tom Brady has just – seen every look that you can give them. And in this newfound spread offense NFL, it becomes even more challenging. And they ran a lot of 12 personnel and and were more heavy this past week just because of the game plan. But it, it allows Tom Brady to really identify what is going on very easily. And because spread offense forces a defense to declare itself, Tom Brady knows what you're in. You can't hide from him. 
So when he knows what defense you're in and knows what type of disguise you're running or what's going on, then it's very easy for him to get the Buccaneers into the right play and then make the right decision if it's throwing the football. So I think that is a big part of the success that he has had for years and years and years. And it's been the coach on the field mentality because he just has seen so much of it and, and can still make the throws and, and execute that in such a fashion that it, it, it has created this combination of a player that is one of the greatest, if not the greatest of all time. And I think he is, he's settling that discussion as the greatest quarterback of all time, greatest perhaps athlete of all time. But I think that's it. And it's, it's the intangible, it's the culture. You know, we, we, sometimes we laugh at it and, and for head coaches to come in and say, Oh, we're going to change the culture. Oh, who cares? Just go win football games. But it really is important. And I think that Tom Brady instills a confidence in the entire team that this is attainable, no matter what they face, that they have Tom Brady, who is just a winner who finds ways to win, no matter what it looks like they'll be able to get it done. And the the final note on this is that if you were ever wondering whether it was Belichick or Brady in New England, it's always been Tom Brady. And I said that before Tom Brady left. And it's not about, oh, Belichick can't coach. It's not that Belichick could not create a successful program outside of Tom Brady. But you need a quarterback and you need the buy-in from your team. And without those factors in those things, and, and there's a lot that goes into it. Brady didn't have the weapons to be successful towards the tail end in New England. This perhaps is the best team he's ever played on with, with Tampa Bay. I mean, outside of 07, if you think Randy Moss is, is better than the assortment of weapons that Brady had with Tampa Bay, but, I mean, this is as good as he's had weapon-wise in, in his entire career. And the difference is that, as much as this is all about the success that Brady has had, he's not as good now as he was in 07. So that's, that's also part of this. But this is a really, really well-built football team, and Jason Light deserves a lot of credit for that. It, it's just that's, that's the thing to me. You need a quarterback play. You need to have the high-powered offense. You need that culture and that buy-in that left when Brady walked out the door. But that, to me, is, is the biggest takeaway. It's not anything – really that he did on the field on Sunday. It's about the organizational culture shift that he brought with him and instilled the confidence in the Buccaneers to win the Super Bowl. I think it also needs to be brought up. Everyone who scored a point had a hand in scoring the 31 points for the Buccaneers, and I'll count Ryan Suck up in this because why not? All of those people were from outside the organization last year. None of those people were Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 2019. Right. It wasn't like they just added Jameis Winston. That's what seems to be thrown around. But it's not like, oh, plug in Tom Brady from Jameis Winston, and now they won the Super Bowl. No. I mean, it's Fournette, Gronkowski, et cetera. Yeah, no. It's the whole assortment. And they built up the front four. And the front four was good last year, probably even a little better this year. Um, But some of the same pieces that they had. Uh, But, you know, point being – you, you plug Tom Brady into this offense. You go from a quarterback who threw 30 picks to a quarterback who threw 12. You know, you, and it's the intangibles, as you said, which I, I think are important, yes. And, you know, there's teaching guys like, you know, I'll, I'll take Mike Evans, okay? Not to pick on Mike Evans, but that's a guy who never went to the playoffs until this year. 
that never played in a playoff game. Didn't know what that felt like. And he was at Texas A&M and they had success there, but it's not the same thing. Like it, it obviously takes another gear to win in the NFL. You don't need me to tell you that, but I'll tell you that anyway. That being said, you know, you, you take those guys who are used to going six and 10 and seven and nine, like a, a Mike Evans, like a Chris Godwin, who again, not their fault, but you know, they didn't know how to win. So it's like, Hey, we're going to bring Tom Brady in here. And look, Tom Brady is not as good as he was even like three years ago. Really? That was the last time he won MVP. Like there's been a drop off, which is to be expected at the age of 43 years old. But Point being that I think they have surrounded him really well, and I'm not saying that to take away from Tom Brady, but you have a guy in Leonard Fournette who was a great pickup who scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl. You have a young emerging running back in Ronald Jones who I thought was really good in the Super Bowl as well. You have an offensive line that I thought they did a fantastic job with including and perhaps most namely trading up to get Tristan Wirfs in the draft, who was really good by the end of the season. The front office did an extraordinary job, I thought, on this roster. And going back to Brady here for a second, I think there's the intangible things, yes, and teaching players this is what you need to do to win. This is the work ethic you need to have. These are the habits you need to have, so on and so forth. But I also think just football IQ is a huge part of this. And, and here I will draw a parallel with the NFC Championship game, where at the end of the first half, Tampa Bay gets the ball back. Tom Brady says, throw it deep, see what happens. They hit the touchdown to Scotty Miller. Not that dissimilarly in the Super Bowl when Kansas City called timeout, why I don't know. And again, you read deserves a lot of criticism for that, quite frankly, because if they swallow those timeouts, go into the half 14-6 with the ball to start the second, I think, you know... I, just, I still think Tampa Bay wins, but I, I don't think it's 31-9. But nonetheless, Brady throws it deep to Mike Evans. They get the penalty on the pass interference because Evans beat his man downfield. That gets them in a position. They get another penalty, which I think was questionable, but they score the touchdown because Brady said, we'll attack this matchup. He gets beat. They get the penalty, which is the same thing as you know picking up those 50 or 60 yards or whatever it was. So I, I think the – Football intelligence and the application of it, and again, that that's going to sound like a dig at Jameis Winston. It's not. It's just that he, you know, he made too many mistakes, and, and that's the fact of the matter. And I'm not saying like Jameis Winston's dumb, but like Tom Brady can take his knowledge and apply it to what he's seeing in the defense, probably better than anyone we've seen play the game of football. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I think that's part of why he's still really good, even at age 43. Like. His arm strength is, you know, decent to good. Um, you know, he's really good at putting you know, the right football, for example. I don't think he's nearly as accurate as we've seen Tom Brady be in the past. And we see that just at various times during games where he can't hit his receivers if they're tightly covered. But, you know, because of that intelligence, because of reading defenses, because of being able to pick on matchups and the weapons he has too, which is, I think, tremendously helpful – I think he's still able to survive. And I think even going into next year, which will be his age 44 season as an NFL quarterback, I still think that there will be a baseline of competence for Tom Brady going into his career just because he's able to do all that stuff, read defenses and and pick out those matchups. Yeah, it it has to be so much easier for him than 
anybody else. And that, I'm, as you rightly point out, it's not a dig at Jameis Winston. Jameis Winston is, sorry, not the greatest quarterback of all time, right? But also has not seen football for in the NFL and, and constantly looking at defenses for 21 years. He just hasn't. I don't. That's what makes Tom Brady so amazing, in that he has been able to physically continue or or be the same person. And part of that goes with, of course, not being mobile almost ever, but being able to physically keep up with the the mind that has grown. I mean, if you can stay relatively physically the same, and Tom Brady has, I, I think is in better shape now than he was at the beginning of his career. But at some point you're still 43 years old. So there is, there is that part of it. But if you're able to do that, the way Tom Brady plays, it's absolutely sustainable because he never relied on being physically good anyway. It's all about the mental stuff. It's all about reading the defenses. That's what makes it so challenging for guys who don't have those physical gifts to be successful in today's NFL to begin with, because when you look at these these great quarterbacks or what separates them, it, there's something that's special. And when we look at Mahomes, it's about the mobility, the arm strength. When we look at Josh Allen, mobility, arm strength, that strength that he has uh, against opposing defenses. And Aaron Rodgers, it's that arm strength, that quick release that is quicker than anything we've ever seen in NFL history. And, and also reading the defenses. But for guys like Peyton Manning wasn't always Peyton Manning. And, and part of that also what made Peyton Manning special as the example was that arm strength, and it wasn't mobility clearly at all. But then it developed into his mentality, his preparation, his mind in reading defenses. It doesn't really start that way, and that's one of the problems with, with a guy, and the guy who comes to mind for me is Tua Tungavailoa, because that's something that he did well in college, but is the, obviously there's going to be a learning curve. Like you don't come in with all the knowledge and knowing exactly what you're seeing, or even Daniel Jones with the Giants in the same way, is someone who you think will have the aptitude, is not going to get royally confused when he steps on an NFL field, but he is not someone who you can't just accumulate that knowledge. You have to go through it and, and play in the NFL and have all of those experiences. And when you don't do things that are physically special, that's really the last thing that, that can be there that will separate you. But to do that, it will take time. So I, I think that's the, the biggest thing when you look at the, the scope of the league around him and what Tom Brady has mastered. He has so good pre-snap and knows what he's doing and nobody is fooling him. And because he's been able to keep up physically with, uh, with being on par to where he was for the, throughout the duration of his career, now he is in a good position where, okay, my mind is better than it's ever been. Physically, I'm not any worse for the wear. So now we have the opportunity to be really good and, and have a lethal combination that ends with a seventh Super Bowl. Sit on Tom Brady, the Buccaneers Super Bowl champions once again. Well, not once again with the Buccaneers, but Tom Brady once again Super Bowl champions uh, for the seventh time. We've gone through uh, this game pretty exhaustively. Uh, one offer my thoughts on the halftime show. I don't think anybody really cares, to be totally honest with you. But I, I will say this. Um, sorry, I had to get that out there. Um, there is one thing we want to get into before we wrap up our show here. Uh, we're recording this on February 12th at 5, now almost 6 o'clock. 
Uh, we found out this morning that the Texans and J.J. Watt are, as they are describing it, mutually parting ways. J.J. Watt will be a free agent for, I think, the first time in his NFL career. I don't think he's ever officially uh, tested the market. Uh, they are getting rid of him. The, the Texans, uh, frankly, are hurtling towards becoming the worst franchise in sports. Uh, and I do not say that type of thing lightly, having seen some of the things I've seen in New York. But J.J. Watt out. Deshaun Watson has asked for a trade. J.J. Uh, Watt actually went and announced this news on Twitter this morning. So he is a free agent. Um, there has been some speculation on where he will go at the age of 32 by the time next season starts. There's been discussion about Pittsburgh. There's been some discussion in some corners about the Green Bay Packers. What I was really intrigued by, and I saw this tweet, uh, honestly, Nick, because you liked it, but Daniel Jeremiah from NFL Network, uh, who's had experience in front offices, uh, seems to think that the best fit, and the more I think about it, the more I think I agree with him, is the Buffalo Bills. So, Nick, I I know there's not a ton of cap room in Buffalo. I know there's going to have to be some gymnastics salary rise to make this work. But J.J. Watt hits the free agent market, and I actually don't think there's a huge market for him, as terrible as that might sound, but I do think he will obviously land somewhere. Where that is, I think, still a question mark. But J.J. Watt, a free agent at the this morning. Yeah, there isn't a huge market for J.J. Watt, in part because of what he is after as well. And I think that's an important piece of this, where he is not going to go and play for the Jacksonville Jaguars or the New York Jets. You know, he's not going to play for the teams towards the top end of the draft. He wants to go and play for a contender. So then when you eliminate around half of the league, because he's only got how many years left as a defensive lineman, and he's not going to play until he's 39 years old. He's, he's someone who wants to put himself in a position to win now with the shelf life of an NFL defensive lineman being what it has been and him being successful. So I think that is clear. I, I, as, you, as you survey the landscape of the NFL, who would be interested I think the Bills would be at the top of the list I'm I'm with Daniel Jeremiah and with you there because of the scheme fit when you look at what the Bills do the 4-3 J.J. Watt a versatile pass rusher is someone who can slide inside and and be a pass rusher from the interior in pass rushing downs in nickel for the Bills swing out to a defensive end in more base situations a guy who you're confident as a big body would help them stop the run as well. So I think he would be a a very welcome addition to the Bills as you look at the scope of their defense. The, of course, hurdle to be crossed here is what do the finances look like and what is J.J. Watt after in terms of now another contract and what does the commitment look like? And the Bills have some flexibility to make some moves on their defensive line uh, to, to cut a few players and then create some cap space that way but is it going to be enough or inhibit their ability to make other moves that you know they'll be interested in making? And J.J. Watt, as good of a player as he has been throughout his career, only five and a half sacks in terms of production last season. Now, it was a lost season for a number of people in Houston. And a new coach or a coach in the middle of that season 
with Romeo Cornell taking over for Bill O'Brien. So when your coach get, gets fired, a lot of times all bets are off. So I will at least grant him that. But uh, how, much of, uh, how much of a market can he command and at what salary, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how, interesting to see how that whole market develops. But I think he can still add a lot in the locker room as a veteran presence, as a leader. I think can add to what teams are interested in. And I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Green Bay, an interesting spot as well. Although, as, as we talked a little bit about before the show, what does his fit look like within their defense? I think, as, as best I can tell, their new defensive coordinator, Joe Barry, I was looking this up, Jimmy, because I was curious. But I think he's another 3-4 guy. I, I, as best I can tell, as someone who has worked under Wade Phillips and come from that type of mold where you probably would not peg J.J. Watt to be the greatest of fits. Of course, their salary cap situation is not great by any stretch of the imagination either. Would he be willing to want to go to Pittsburgh to play with his brothers, also not perhaps giving himself the best chance to win because of how the Steelers finished last season in a defense that you know is really good, but they'll be losing pieces on the offensive side of the football. And I candidly, I don't know how much confidence one should have reasonably that Ben Roethlisberger is still a viable quarterback that could win you a Super Bowl. So as you look up and down, the bills make a lot of sense. They may be one of the best fits. Kansas city, I think would be a place that he would fit as well. If he were interested in making the trip down there, of course, their financial situation, not great with, uh, around 18 million over the cap in this present moment. So they're, it's, it's going to be a lot of gymnastics for a number of teams figuring out what their cap situations look like. But to make a long answer a little bit shorter here to end things, yes, I would like J.J. Watt. I think he would be a great fit with the Bills. Now it's about all the other stuff that you have to jump through in, in looking at the rest of the NFL offseason. I'll give you one more team that I think could be in the market we haven't talked about. I think the teams we've talked about are not obvious, but I I think all sort of jump off the sheet in a way. Um, I think Seattle is another interesting potential landing spot here. They've got about $14 in change in cap room. Um, They could probably swing J.J. Watt at this point within that window. Um, John Schneider is a GM who, you know, has, has made some splashy moves in the past. I think of Jamal Adams, Flanny, Jamal Adams yeah. you know, the last couple of off seasons, you know, they, they will go out and make splashes. Um, how much better those moves actually made them and their defense, I think maybe a little more debatable, but this would be less of a, um, you know, not a surprise, but a, a splashy type of move than those two, I think, I think were. So I'll be interested to see if Seattle jumps in this fray. I think they will. Um, and if you, if you know, were to put, if I were, if I were John Snyder, I might think about bolstering that offensive line based upon what. Yes, I, no, I agree. I agree. Be. But I mean, <laughs> you might, Hey, you might be able to do both. Yeah. I'm with you. You never know. AJ won't want to go there. You always do creative. I'll tell you that. Well, yes, and and that's that's true. You know, do you actually believe those Russell Wilson rumors? I'm not sure if I do. 
I don't know. And it was funny. I was texting my brother the other day and we were going back and forth about this stuff. And I said, I wasn't sure I checked and Russell Wilson did have a no trade clause. So he does as, as a standard for these massive contracts you want as a player to be in control of your own destiny. But I, I what I said to him was, Russell Wilson, if he doesn't have a no-trade clause, better be careful because he's about to run his mouth to getting traded to Houston, which is not something that you know Russ wants at all. And, and I, think it's, I think it's posturing. I don't think uh, he, is, he is too serious about moving on from the Seahawks. They have equipped him with a lot. Perhaps the offensive line has been a little bit lacking. But Russell Wilson has not played – terribly well down the stretch over the last couple of seasons too and I think that he is somewhat responsible now both of these things are related I'm sure they are they are because as we saw in the Super Bowl it's hard when your offensive line doesn't give you the opportunity but I think what Russell Wilson has proven over the last couple of years is that he is a guy who needs some help he is not the elite of the elite talent that can carry your team perhaps the way that you would hope he can. Now, of course, no one can do it himself. Patrick Mahomes proved that on Sunday, as good as we think that Patrick Mahomes is. So it is a team game. Uh, You know, this just in, football, a team game. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. but Every once or twice. Exactly right. So I, I don't know that I buy too much into it, but I do think he's frustrated because he is not wrong in saying, that Seattle has not done enough to put things around him in terms of an offensive line. They have not protected him. He's gotten sacked, I think it's 100 times more than any other quarterback since he's been in the league. I think that that shows you where they are in in being an offensive line and protecting him. The problem is I don't know how much variability they have in terms of wiggle room, salary cap, and if that might mean it's a weapon that gets taken away. Do do they – have to move on from a Tyler Lockett or paying a DK Metcalf at some point uh, to, to bolster that offensive line. But it was, I, I was curious with John Schneider's approach to building this roster dating back to the Jamal Adams trade. And, and I think that you as a Jets fan were very happy with that return as you should have been. And it was curious to me that they would give up two firsts for a safety when they had struggled so much on the offensive line. And I don't know how much of a difference maker Jamal Adams was going to be. Of course, their defense got much better towards the tail end of that season. But at some point, if Russell Wilson isn't going to be successful, neither will the Seahawks. So I don't, I I think if you're asking me, is he going to be in Seattle next year? Yeah, I, I think so. It's just, there are so many hoops to jump through, especially in this offseason with the contracts that can't be ignored. Now, if they want it to happen, it'll happen. But I, I think Russ will be there. He does not strike me as someone who is really going to go out of his way to force, force himself out of Seattle. I think it's a different situation from Deshaun Watson where some people may – it may raise some eyebrows if he does that. Everyone says, okay, well, the Texans are a mess. All right, Deshaun, you, you do what you need to do. Seattle was just in the playoffs, and a lot of people like what Pete Carroll has done. They have a good defense. Yes, Russ has been sacked a lot, but come on. You're, you're, where are you going to go that's an improvement here, Russ? I mean, come on. Let's, let's, let's walk this back a little bit where he, he looks more selfish, quite frankly, in that situation. So I think he'll be there, but they would be wise to, to heed his advice and direction on, uh, on, on bolstering the offensive line because 
these things, as we've seen with Watson, can turn ugly. And Russell Wilson is so important to any chance that Seattle has for success going forward. So that, to me, would be, would be wise to follow his direction on improving the offensive line for next year. And I also think, I mean, to be frank, part of it is if you look at the Seahawks roster construction, Russell Wilson costs $32 million. And look, I'm not exonerating the front office because the the Jamal Adams trade should not have happened from their point of view. Um, And and that's part of the reason why I think the Jets are even in the discussion for Deshaun Watson because they can give that kind of a return. But you look at up and down the roster, Wilson's making 32 you know, Bobby Wagner's cap hit is like 15, 16, and it's down from there. Um, so they don't have a ton of money to spend. Now, the offensive line needs to be a lot better, and nobody's disputing that because Russell Wilson is running for his life back there. Um, it would be a bummer, though, from that point of view because I really think from a weapons standpoint, they have a really good setup for him there with Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf. Like, you're – that those two guys are up there in terms of like best receiver duos in the game. Cause I just think they complement each other really well. I think part of it also too, is that uh, at least the last couple of years and you know, I, I know this is a Jets fan. Um, Brian Schottenheimer as an offensive coordinator, <laughs> not it. And you know, we saw that with the Seahawks. Uh, they just brought in Shane Waldron as their new offensive coordinator who comes over from the Rams. who I think could be pretty good. Um, so I think I think this is also posturing. Um, I would maybe even go a step further than you and say that there probably isn't much here. But I could be wrong on that. I mean, look, I have been wrong before, believe me. I'm not good with predictions or anything like that. Uh, I also think Russell Wilson will be in Seattle next year, and I think they're going to take a step up. I, I just think – I hate to say things like this because Brian Schottenheimer is a, a highly um, – smart, competent football mind. But there is an element of that where I almost wonder if he was holding that offense back. Like they were talking about running the ball, which, you know, there's the saying is let Russ cook for a reason. And I think if they open it up a little bit more, like I think they will do with Shane Waldron, um, they'll, they'll be better off next year. So we're interested to see what happens in Houston. We all kind of know what's going to happen in Houston. The question is how bad will it be? The, what will happen in Seattle, what will happen in the NFL offseason. We will be back with new episodes of NFL Friday as they warrant. But on behalf of Nick DeLuca, our producer, Chris Persianen, um want to thank all of you for tuning in all season long to NFL Friday. Uh, it's been a lot of fun doing these every week with you. And thank you all for listening all season long. We hope to see you in the off season and when next season comes around as well. Again, I'm Jimmy Sullivan. This has been the latest episode of NFL Friday. Thank you for listening.